Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I have a degree in film studies. I am currently a Jew and I have never rolled on Shabbos and I am one of the hosts of this podcast. I am joined as always by my co-host, Daniel Zano. Hi, Harry. My name is Daniel Zana. I am a documentary filmmaker, a video editor, and I'm still looking for my Credence tapes. But I'm excited today to talk about The Big Lebowski, finally. I know a lot of people have been asking about this uh, movie, and we're excited today to be discussing it with our guest today, who's a writer and editor living in Los Angeles. Her journalism, nonfiction, and poetry have appeared in The Forward, Lilith Magazine, Tablet Magazine, Kfeller, My Jewish Learning, E-Jewish philanthropy, and elsewhere. She's currently the managing editor at the Jewish Review of Books, the script writer at Yiddish Pop, and is an MFA candidate at Antioch University, LA, for creative nonfiction. Julie Sugar, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here to discuss the movie. Like I said, The Big Lebowski, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Not our first Cohen Brothers movie. We previously have done A Serious Man, also another uh, Jewish film. I shouldn't say also, I don't want to like tease anyone's ratings or anything like that, but it is kind of an interesting movie. You know, before we kind of dig into it, Julie, I wanted to know, simple question, why'd you pick this film? I thought of The Big Lebowski. What was interesting was that I told you, told you I wanted to talk about The Big Lebowski and I hadn't watched it in a really long time. Mm -hmm. And what had happened since watching it and probably, I can probably place this, I probably watched it in 2001 maybe 2002, 2001 or 2002. It was it was before I graduated from high school, not to age me too much, but <laughs> there you have it. When I saw it, and that was the last time I saw it until recently, I did not identify as Shomer Shabbos. I didn't really know what Shabbos was. There's a character in The Big Lebowski who identifies as Shomer mm -mm, Shabbos. So I was really curious to revisit it and also talk about religious Jewish characters in films. And I feel like the character of Walter Sobchak is just such a big deal, like looms so large. So that's, I mean, I'm happy to talk about other things as well, including, of course, the dude, but it was Walter and wanting to revisit a Shomer Shabbos character um, on film and, and in a film that so many of us love so much. Right. I had seen this film like you, you know, a, a long time ago. And I, of course, knew about the uh, the Shomer Shabbos line. And I probably knew that going into it back then, because that, like you said, Daniel, this has been a highly requested movie. It's one of the most iconic, I would say, you know, Jewish lines in, in any major movie. Sure. And it's, but but this time when I was watching it, you know, especially because like you're saying, Julie, that Walter is this, you know, outsized Jewish character, right? He, and he really is and at least explicit Jew Jewishness. And I, I think we're going to talk about a lot of the spirituality of this movie and the symbolism. But if you wanted to point to someone who is, you know, so clearly Jewish, it's Walter and all of, you know, all of his lines there. And I, I'm excited to talk about his character because obviously he's Jewish, but his representation of a Jewish character is, I couldn't compare it to anything. It's unlike any of, I think, some of the, you know, the, the tropes, so to speak, that Daniel and I have identified in past episodes about what characterizes a Jewish character. And Walter... He's coming with a lot that I, I, I can't place. And I don't want to get too specific yet because we'll get into it. But I, I didn't always find myself sympathizing with him. Sometimes I was upset with the way he used his religion. Sometimes I was very impressed by how devoted he was to it. But it was really just a complex portrayal that I'm so excited to get into. Yeah, totally. And I I was also just, and I'm happy to talk, of course, we can zoom out and talk about 
the whole movie, you know, before we dive into Walter, that character is definitely the reason I wanted to talk about The Big Lebowski. And I think it's just so exciting to see a Jewish character who on one hand is, feels like really relatable. And I, I this is what I want to talk, talk about with you guys um, later as well, but feels like a lot of people were like, yeah, you know, uh, but then also is completely insane and unique, which I just find really exciting as a writer. And I also write personal essay and memoir. I write a lot about Jewish identity and Jewish journey. And I, I find that to be just really fascinating. It's interesting that that we're only talking about Walter as the uh, explicitly Jewish character. There are some you know, I, I have some reads on, on some of the other characters and their sort of Jewishness implied or otherwise uh, that I'm excited to get into, you know, Ooh. just uh, just so we know who we're talking about. We have Jeff Bridges as Jeff the Dude Lebowski. We have John Goodman as Walter Subcheck, which is who we were, talking, we were talking about just a moment ago. We have Julianne Moore as Maude Lebowski and Steve Buscemi as Donnie. So with the pins being set up, Harry, do you think it's your time to read the IMDb summary? Yeah, sure. Let's jump right in. The summary this week reads, Ultimate LA slacker Jeff the Dude Lebowski, mistaken for a millionaire of the same name, seeks restitution for a rug ruined by debt collectors, enlisting his bowling buddies for help while trying to find the millionaire's missing wife. So I don't really have like a context corner this time. I do have like a Daniel's fun LA stories as they relate to the film of the week kind of corner. If you guys are eager to join me there. Totally. Also, as I'm, I'm not an Angelino like you, but uh, I'm a current Angelino. So I, I loved that part of rewatching the movie. Just and before you jump in there, you know, just sure. part of the context, you know, reading about this, this is a, a very personal movie to the Cohen brothers, you know, who are, you know, our Jewish directors in this case. And they said that I think the dude was definitely modeled after, you know, people they knew. And it was a lot of the kind of characters were, you know, approximations of people in their lives. And you kind of could believe that Walter, you know, was, uh, you know, a sort of Jewish figure uh, in the in their lives. But this this movie really carries that like lived in L.A. feel to it. And as as the resident expert on it, I thought I would just give you a little intro and set this up a little more, uh, you know, more properly so that you can really take the podium. Oh, gosh, Harry, please. <laughs> um, he adjusts his TED style microphone and is ready to give a TED talk about. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just had two fun stories like, uh, you know, so so this is kind of like a uh, L.A. sort of neo-noir movie kind of in the tradition of like a, a long goodbye or something like that, where you have such interesting characters that our main character experiences throughout. Two fun scenes. So when Walter picks up the dude and they're going out, you know, we're skipping ahead a little bit, so maybe I could save this for later. But, you know, when they're heading out to, to drop off that ransom money, they pull into a parking lot. And in that parking lot is a, a video store that I used to work at called Advanced Video. So they're pulling into that parking lot across the street is Del Taco. And so this must have been... I think in college when I worked at a at a dubbing house where they had like VCR tapes of like actors reels, demo reels. So like before the internet was a thing so much, you know, actors would like send VHS tapes around. And one of the copies of the VHS tapes that we made was one of the nihilists. He was like, you know, auditioning for other roles. So we would like plug in his VHS tape in one VCR and then make 15 copies from this wall of VCRs and we'd make a bunch of copies. So not only did I like work at the place featured in the movie somewhat in the background, but I also like dubbed a tape from one of the nihilists. So that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very interesting seeing the movie after had worked there, 
but I do feel like shout out to advanced video. If you're still around, uh, I feel like that was my gateway into post-production is dubbing VCR tape. So maybe anyway. full circle. I, I don't know. We, we could look into it to see if they're still around. I, I don't know how much there's a demand for that service these days, but mm, right. you know, you never know. There, there are a lot of vintage collectors out here who want to see uh you know, VCR replication dubbing. I mean, dubbing obviously is still, right. It's still relevant, but I, I mean, I feel like, you know, the last blockbuster is somewhere in Oregon still. I feel like um, I um, musicians are putting out their singles now on cassettes still. And I feel like VCRs and VHS tapes and everything having a comeback, you know? Yeah, I, I think I've heard like record sales also are like have become one of the biggest, you know, I don't know how how much relative to, you know, an artist's sales, you know, right. records are actually coming in, but bigger than you'd expect, I think. So do you think we should put our podcast out on cassettes? If we want to reach, you know, the widest audience, I think we have to. Yeah, you're our resident youth expert, Harry. Do you think that the youth would buy our stuff on? <laughs> let me, on you know what? Let me check in with the youth. I'll, I'm going to get back to you. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll throw a survey out on TikTok or something, and <laughs> that's what they do. Yeah, I was about to say it's it's TikTok. It's all surveys. Uh... <laughs> exactly. We love surveys. Our generation is that right? I don't know. I mean, oh, okay. honestly, BuzzFeed, all that stuff. That's true. That's true. I keep trying to think of a great way to tie this back into the movie. You know, like we were talking about like material vintage, you know, I was thinking of like sure. a great rug, you know, ties the room together. Like this really is oh, about, sure. you know, like, you know, it's about your stuff. It's about, you know, what grounds you in, in the present. But I don't, I don't know how all that works. But anyways, we should probably talk about the movie a bit. Yeah, I think so. You know, why not? Like, I'm just, I'm kind of like the dude in this episode. I'm just kind of going with the flow, you know? So like, whatever, man. I just want to say about the plot. Um in preparation for this Please. conversation it seems like everyone agrees that the plot is like completely confusing and that that might be part of the point you know so like i i don't know i i don't know how much we should dive into like you know the who's and what's of like every twist and turn of the caper uh but i don't and i don't know how much of it was uh intentional but it, it sort of seems like no one thinks that the the plot is what is, you know, carrying this movie. No, I, I mean, I feel like it's, it's kind of like, for me, it's the writing and the characters it themselves. They're such big characters. Like, like you said, Walter is like a big character. The nihilists are like a group of big characters. The dude is like this iconic character. Every, every Donnie line, like I remember in college, people were just kind of like, going back and forth and doing the shtick between Donnie and Walter and the dude. And that was just the thing. Um, shout out to a friend of ours who has a big Lebowski themed license plate. Um, you know, it's, it's just stayed with people for so long. And I think it's because the lines are so memorable, the set pieces, the way that things just happen. It's so different than anything else that I've seen and continue, you know, it still stands out as this sort of unique film that has these unique set pieces, the musical we'll talk about the way that, these dream sequences happen. It's just all, it's all great. It, yeah, it, it's really true that all of the memorable scenes kind of exist outside the plot. You know, we, we did, we do put together a plot, you know, just to kind of move us through the movie. And I, I've told this to Daniel before I said, so I didn't really include any of the Walter Chavez stuff because it doesn't actually progress the plot forward. Like it would just totally distract us because it's like a side thing. Obviously we're mm. going to talk about it. And I made note of like, you know, here's where we need to jump into that. But I totally agree with you. I think the plot serves A to kind of pull you away but it also it it kind of marks you know it, it forces you to track you know the dudes you know the way that he kind of progresses through the plot and the way that ultimately from beginning to end without kind of you know jumping too far ahead 
the plot doesn't really bear any impact on his life. I mean, there's obviously some tragic implications of what happens that he doesn't even seem to care about so much. But like, it says so much about the dude, the way that he is just so unwillingly roped into this and is just trying to get away. And the movie is almost about his escape from the plot. He just wants to smoke bull and just you know take a bath in, in peace and calm without anyone coming into his home and kind of beating him up and it's just it, there's a real tension with the plot i i completely agree with where you, what you pointed out he's a pacifist man he's just trying to get through the day you know um really i didn't is. pour a white russian i have some tea with me but i feel like this is sort of like in honor of like the dude's sweater the maybe? colors yeah that's oh. like cream and I don't know how cream and latte colors. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Caroline who yeah, made this. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Everyone's really rocking. I, I was just gonna say everyone's rocking the uh, the dude colors. I should put on a robe or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm oh wearing man. Wearing like a. I, totally. Yeah, I mean they do sell like I feel like Pendleton, the company that made the sweater, has since like marketed the sweater as like the dude sweater. Um, so yeah. No doubt. Uh, so if you have that handy, great. If not, why don't we take a quick break, give you a chance to change into your bathrobe, we'll come <laughs> back. Um, we'll start talk, talking through the plot, and uh, we'll kind of like discuss things as they come up. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. We'll be right back, man. Some stories are so profound, they transform the people who tell them. I'm Adam Langer, host of The Forward's new seven-part podcast series, Playing Anne Frank. I've been digging into library archives, interviewing actors and writers and designers to bring you a story that hasn't been told before. How the diary of Anne Frank changed the people who brought it to Broadway, Hollywood, and the rest of the world. You can listen to Playing Anne Frank wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Julie Sugar to discuss The Big Lebowski. Harry, would you like to kick it off? Sure. Nice correction there. Thank Let's you. leave that all in. Yep. Um, the movie opens with Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski as he enters his home and is immediately attacked by two guys who are asking for the money that's owed to them by his presumed wife, Bunny Lebowski. They shove his head into the toilet and pee on his rug before they realize that they have the wrong Jeff Lebowski and leave. The dude tells his bowling friends, Walter and Donnie, about what happened, and they urged him to visit the intended victim, the wealthy Jeff Lebowski, who has the same name as him, and ask him to compensate for the rug, to compensate the rug. The wealthy Lebowski refuses, but the dude steals a rug anyways and meets Bunny and her nihilist friend, Yuli, on the way out. And that kind of sets the stage there. And then there's a lot that goes on in those uh, those opening scenes, a lot of scene setting for, you know, the bowling and their all their relationships and just kind of already the du the dude's like wit which I think we get a lot of early on in that like toilet scene in particular. There's also the incredible Philip Seymour Hoffman as kind of uh, the other Lebowski's stooge guy, Brant. Ah, yeah, just such a good, everything in that mansion is is just great. He plays such a straight man to Lebowski's kind of like goofy guy. And our summary obviously doesn't capture the, the awesomeness of this film. We say this like every episode. If you're playing Jews on film, bingo. You know, I've said it, but like the film opens with this like tumbleweed kind of like drifting. And we have Sam Elliott, who's playing a cowboy. He does this voiceover to kind of like introduce our film. So we have like Western music to start it off. This Lebowski, he called himself the dude. Now, dude, that's a name no one would self-apply where I come from. But 
Then there was a lot about the dude that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And a lot about where he lived, likewise. I believe the dude is at Ralph's Market uh, buying some creamer in his robe and pays for it with like a check so that he can go home and make a white Russian. And I think he's starting to make his white Russian and then the thugs come in and they immediately just like assault him and do all this terrible stuff. And he's totally flummoxed because he's just trying to like relax, smoke a joint and drink his white Russian. And then I think Flea is one of the stooges, right? Yeah. Um, and he like, it's not, but it's not the nihilist right away. It's, I think it's, uh, it's the ones who work for it. No, it's the ones who work for Treehorn. We find for out. For Jackie later. Treehorn. Okay, got it. So yeah. much plot. Not yeah. all the point. But... Yeah, like you said, Julie, it's kind of a lot. Exactly. But <laughs> I wanted to actually open by asking a question about that, that Sam Elliott frame. I, I didn't mention it in the summary, but like you said, it opens up with this frame. And Sam Elliott kind of pitches this, like, as a story that he's telling over. He talks about, he describes who the dude is. He says that he was, you know, the right man for his time and place, that he, like, existed in a very specific time in the 90s and in, in L.A. and just, like, was representative of that. And I think giving it, giving this movie a frame, you know, because we really only call back to Sam Elliott in, I guess he, he shows up a little bit in the middle, but we really only see him towards the end. And it, to me, it just kind of presented the story a lot more like as like a fable, almost mythically, you know, metaphorically, like we're, we're viewing this instead of just getting the surface level movie as a movie, which is how, you know, any other movie would begin. We're presented it in this, you know, in the structure, like it gives it, you know, this unique value. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, what that added to the movie. What do you think that choice was? And, you know, obviously bonus points if you can tie it into some of the religious themes that I'm kind of hinting at here. But, you know, I want to hear what you guys made of that because it's it's an interesting choice. You know, this movie could have taken off 10 minutes, you know, five in the beginning, five in the end and been more or less the same. So I wanted to hear what you think about that. I just want to say, first of all, this this movie came out in 98 and I watched it very recently in preparation for this. And it holds up so well. Like mm -hmm. it really... I don't know if I could say this, or maybe it's just because I just love the Big Lebowski so much, but it, it really holds up so well. And this frame, which like when you describe it, like it sounds like it shouldn't work, you know, right. like he's this cowboy. A bit. Yeah, he's this like very like stereotypical cowboy in the middle of L.A. His name is The Stranger, you know, um, but it does work. I mean, maybe it it's just part of the myth making of the character of the dude. I mean, you know, we're. We started talking a lot about Walter because this is the Jews on film and I wanted to talk about that, you know, initially, but this is the dude's movie. I don't know. I mean, I mean the Coen brothers took a risk because like, you know, this could this could have been a flop, but it's almost like the stranger character knew that this was going to become a cult movie and that the dude was going to become almost like a religious figure. You know, that's sort of, I don't know if that's what you're hinting at, Harry, but that's kind of how, no, I'm, how I'm seeing no, it. No, but but exa everything you're saying, I totally agree with. Like, you know, we joked about this at the beginning of the podcast, right? What, what's that faith called? It's like dudism. Dudism, yeah. Like, and they have like a whole like celebration every year and they, I, I don't know fest. the deals of it. Yeah, it's yeah. very cultish. I mean, when you were calling the movie, you know, sort of cult film, like I think it's more than a cult film. It's a literal film cult. Right? It's a way it's, of it's life for some people, for sure. And and that's what it's doing. I mean, who's their center figure? You know, it's not like the whole point of the movie is that he's not Jeffrey Lebowski. When he's called Jeff Lebowski, he's insulted by that. He's like, I'm not Jeff Lebowski. I'm the dude. I'm, the dude. You know, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm this sort of generic, symbolic, like 
I am the everyman. I represent everyone. I mean, that is like, you know, I, I'm trying to think what the equivalent would be, you know, in, in a religious setting, like what I'm thinking of now, which is not religious, but is the concept of, you know, what Stanley always said about Spider-Man, you know, the character where why did they put this young kid in a mask? It's so that anyone could be him, you know, and like anyone could be Spider-Man and it's anyone is the dude. It's this mythic story about, you know, all of us who we can aspire to be. And I, I don't know if I can pull this into Jewish, but I really agree with that. You know, this movie, it, it wasn't by mistake that it became a cult movie and kind of inspired its own cult. You know, that that was all going to happen, you know, from the outset. Can I ask a very Jewish question to your question, Harry? Please. Or rather, can I answer your question with a question? What was another That's Coen Brothers? Jewish. Yeah. What was another Coen Brothers movie we covered and how did it start? So I was thinking of this and we're, yeah. you're talking about A Serious Man, which is the other one we covered which its own way had like a you know 100%. 10 minute sequence as like again like a very metaphorical thing so that you could not watch the next you know 9 90% of the movie without tying it back you know what what did the beginning say about what yeah. happened there like yeah. they they as filmmakers really i guess pay attention to the myth making qualities of their movies and it's not just about the story it's about how they're telling their story right and i think that's really interesting I mean, also the. I mean, I did a little digging online. Sometimes I get a little carried away with uh, you know researching for the episode. But the tumbleweed, you know, they sort of the symbolic nature of it, it's just kind of like getting blown by the wind and having things happen to it, and it's just getting carried this way and that way. And that's like what happens to the dude in this movie. He doesn't really do anything. He kind of just like reacts to things that are done to him, whether it's like getting a, a, a flushed in the toilet or having his rug peed on or you know doing this or that or the other, I think uh, he's just kind of reacting to it all and kind of trying to get by, listening to his tape, smoking his weed and drinking his white Russians and bowling, you know? I want to push back on that a little bit because Please. I think that he's, he's definitely like this whole, the, the whole movie starts off because he happens to have the same name as this other guy mm -hmm. when actually he's the dude or El Duderino or you know, all those other, <laughs> his dudeness, other yeah. Yeah, exactly, all the other white right. ways he wants to be called. But but I think he does actually react and he reacts pretty reasonably mm -hmm. every single time there's something that he needs to do or decide. He's actually making with the information that he has, he's generally making like the best decision mm -hmm. despite being like a humongous slacker. Like he's not like, like he's showing up and like when he's like, you know, on this mission to like help with the, Oh, did we did we get totally a field? Are we still in the middle of plot? I don't know Wait, if we got no, we're to just, that. Okay, we're good. We're good. <laughs> uh, but it's like this whole part where he's you know helping meet the kidnappers of Bunny, and you know he he could have just not done that. Um, sure. So I think he's very laid back, but he's not he's not doing nothing either. You know, so sure. he's like a tumbleweed in terms of like things are happening and people keep coming into his house and beating him up. Right. But he but he does have agency too. Mm -hmm. I, I think what you said about him, you know, doing the best that he can with whatever information he has is, is exactly how I would describe it. Because like you, Daniel, I was also watching him and wondering, you know, he's so chill, like laid back, relaxed. Is he a passive character? But, you know, the plot starts because they they peed on his carpet and he could have been fine with that. But he goes alone to Jeffrey Lebowski and demands his rug back. And when he says no, he steals a different rug from him like he is active in that situation. I think what ends up happening to him throughout the movie is that he is like a tumbleweed, just pushed around by these forces that he just doesn't understand. You know, he doesn't get why he's being 
you know, why, why he's being beat up by these people or why, you know, he doesn't realize, and we'll get into this later, you know, one of the big twists is that, you know, the whole ransom thing was actually a setup by a couple different parties with different motivations. Like there is so much that pushes him around that, that he doesn't know. So I think he's a victim to, you know, just a limited circumstance, understanding yeah. of right to his circumstances and to his limited sure. awareness of the context. And I'm sure we can pull something, you know, metaphorical about how he's just pushed around, but I don't blame him because I think, you know, given what he knows, he does seek out certain people, sure. you know, he takes Maud pushing him, but he goes to the doctor later, like all, all this stuff, you right. know, he does more than than not, I think. But I think, I mean, not to split hairs here or just to, to do a 710 split here, but I, I, I feel like he initially was probably not going to do anything about the rug. And only after he tells over his story to Donnie and Walter, do they, do they say, that rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. This guy peed on it. Donnie, please. You know, this is the fucking guy. I could find this fucking Lebowski guy. His name is Lebowski? That's your name, dude. This is the guy who should compensate me for the fucking rug. His wife goes out and owes money all over town and they pee on my rug? They pee on your fucking rug? They peed on my fucking rug. That's right, dude. I don't necessarily feel like his sort of... Uh, he's not really like a confrontational kind of person. He's just like a peace and love kind of dude. For so sure. I think, again, outside, I'm a pacifist, man. <laughs> you know, that outside influence affecting him and blowing him in the direction of go get what you deserve. I feel like, you know, we see that again and again. I think Walter is one of the outside forces mm -hmm. blowing him hither sure. and thither. I mean, yeah. certainly the thing about the rug, um, I mean, maybe Don. No, Donnie was, I think, just echoing Walter, you know, so. And getting yelled at. Poor Donnie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then also with the, with trying to, you know, fake out the the kidnappers, which turned out to be a fake out anyway, but they didn't know that. Anyway, you know, it, it was, it was Walter who every step of the way was just making things uh, more complicated. Yeah, the, the, this everything we're talking about with just sort of like the tumbleweed metaphor, the wind blowing him around. I mean, you know, we we spoke about this a little bit before Daniel, just about you know diff people's identities and belief systems and every character in their own. Way. I mean, they make a big deal of you know Walter's Jewishness, the nihilist nihilism, and they're kind of it's all about these external like drives that are kind of pushing people to act as they do. And and I don't know if dude is the dude is just the best example and we've kind of covered some of it, but I'm I'm interested in tracking that as we move forward. Sure. So I just I'm just gonna put that out there if anyone yeah. else wants to think about yeah. it with me. Totally. Uh you know, so as the film progresses, uh we kind of talked about it. Bunny Lebowski, played by Tara Reed, is kidnapped and Jeff Lebowski, the old guy, hires the dude to deliver the ransom for her kidnapping, presuming that uh, he'd recognize the kidnappers as the guys who sort of broke into his house. That night, the dude is attacked by a different group of people who steal the rug, who steal his new rug that he's stolen from Lebowski's. And this is when we're introduced to the nihilists, right? So one of them is the guy whose VHS I, I dubbed, and the other one is Flea, and then there's a third person. <laughs> so just for those keeping track. Uh, Walter asked to accompany the dude on a ransom transfer where he basically will scheme to give the kidnappers a fake briefcase, like a ringer briefcase, and then split the money that they're going to keep with the dude. The kidnappers take the fake briefcase, and then the disappointed dude and a triumphant Walter return back to the bowling alley. Uh, when they exit the bowling uh, alley, when they're done with their game, they discover that the car has been stolen, and now they're really concerned because they've lost this, they've sort of lost this alleged missing money that Jeff Lebowski, the old, has given them. 
So we'll kind of stop here and we'll kind of like talk maybe about the bowling scenes and some other, you know, the famous uh, Shomer Shabbos subplot and stuff like that. But yeah, any thoughts on this area? I just remembering like, you know, kind of back to this like tumbleweed image of the dude being the tumbleweed, like when this made, I, might be like structurally like the, like one of the most dramatic moments of the movie where, um, you know, the dude is trying to fulfill his assignment to the other Lebowski and Walter comes along, which already was breaking the rules. And then Walter kind of just fudges the whole thing against the dude's wishes. And I'm just remembering like the dude running after the guys on the motorcycles, right. you know, like, like there's just this, like this very pointed like, jellies, no. right? <laughs> like I've got it. I've got it. You know, cause I think what, what, what have they thrown over is like, the suitcase full of underwear or something. Right. It's quite poignant. Like he really wanted to try to do it. And he also talks about Bunny. Like he's like, you know, they're going to, they're going to kill this poor girl, you know, and Walter is, um, I don't know, maybe he's right in the end, but he, he seems very, Walter is like an amazingly sympathetic character, despite the fact that he does extremely unsympathetic things, which I think is a testament to both the acting and the writing. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And I, I really like watching Walter this time. And of course, I was predisposed to be sympathetic to him. I mean, he's that, you know, Jewish icon. It was so exciting to see him. And we're going to talk about it in this section where he really starts to announce his Judaism more pronounced than ever. But in the beginning, when he's pushing the dude to do these things, you know, it's really it's part of the tumbleweed metaphor. But the dude just wants to hand over the money, finish it, close this saga. You know, the more complex this case gets, the less dude wants to be part of it because he's, right. he's so done with it. And I, I was so upset with Walter when he's like, Oh, trust me, I think the dude at some point makes the mistake of saying, you know, maybe Bunny kidnapped herself. Like, I, I've heard that people do things like that. And Walter's like, oh, my God, she kidnapped herself. We're going to do the underwear thing. We're going to steal the money. And the dude is like, no, I don't want any of this. Let's just hand over the money. And it's it's funny that Walter ultimately is vindicated. You know, I don't know how, you know, what we should like chalk that up to that. He was, you know, right all along. He Maybe you need a healthy bit of skepticism because ultimately he's proven correct. But until he kind of came around on him and it was like, oh, actually, he was right about all this. I, I felt myself getting very annoyed. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think what I would yeah. chalk up uh, Walter's intelligence to is his time in the service. Uh, so for those who are not familiar with the movie and are not planning to watch it at this point, Walter's played by John Goodman. And most of the time he's wearing these like bright orange glasses, usually with a, a bandana. He's wearing like a tactical vest with like all sorts of pockets. And he constantly talks about his service, presumably in the Vietnam War, the Korean War. Damn, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay. Ma'am. And so so I mean I would assume that like his intelligence or his or his the way that he talks about it it seems like he just knows what's going on at all times and the dude is just like you said Harry not having it and I found it to be like a little bit much sometimes but I guess that's part of the charm and then like the fact this sort of duality of that this person are we are we cool to get into the Shomer Shabbos stuff now, or or do we yeah. want to? Okay, okay. It. So I think it's just interesting yeah. that this person who's like so violent and so rude to Donnie and and whatever purports himself to be this like Torah Jew who's like not going to bowl on Shabbat because he's just like technically 
he's like married to a Jewish woman, right? And did not convert. Well, is that right? No, he was married to her, I think converted for her, and they've just been divorced for years. The dude says, But I converted when I married Cynthia. Yeah, Come on, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and, know this. Yeah, and five fucking years ago, you were divorced. And Walter says, So what do you say? When you get divorced, you turn in your library card, you get a new license, you stop being Jewish? This is the drawing line. That's a real, that's someone who's really Jewish. I mean, they say about converts that, a convert was had a Jewish soul all along, you know, mm -hmm. and Walter right, seems right. to say like, yeah, like I, I did this when I married my wife and then we split up, but I didn't split up from my religious or my, you know, religious identity, my Jewish identity. I think part of that, and you reminded me of this also, Daniel, when you were talking about, you know, what's kind of pushing Walter to like care so much and that whole, you know, I don't roll on Shabbos. And he kind of says, and like also tying back to Vietnam, you know, I, I think. Right, right, right. Over the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And he this calls him out bowling. for the other. Oh my God. I for, We didn't even mention that scene where he pulls out the gun on the guy, you know, oh, who's right. not going to give himself a zero for stepping oh, over the line. And the dude is like, just let him take the seven and he's, or the eight or whatever. And he's like, no, like. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. It's just, hey, man, it's Smokey. So his toe slipped over a little, you know? It's just a game, man. This is a league game. This determines who enters the next round robin. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't over. Give me the marker, dude. I'm marking an eight. Smokey, my friend. You're entering a world of pain. Walter, man. You mark that frame and eight, you're entering a world of pain. And that, like, and of course this is obvious, and, you know, I could have put this together sooner, but, like, that, of course, translates to his relationship with his Jewishness. You know, on one end, it's the, why is he still so committed to it? Because he's a lawful guy. He believes in the rules. Like, like he said, you don't turn in your library card. I converted. This is, you know, my life. This is where I am. But everything, he's very, like, rule-bound and just and organized. And... What's fascinating is that this is such an interesting relationship with Jewishness that we've seen in a film that's really focusing on, you know, the rule following, like on the structural components. I think a lot of times you see Jewishness on film the way we've described it, and it's in, you know, a, a culture, it's in a, a spirituality, a brisket, a, 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 it's like... in it's in food. There's a real strong adherence to rules, and that's kind of how he's representing, you know, especially, you know, at, on, on the opposite of the dude who is like kind of, you know, religionless, like lawless kind of, he's this counter of, you know, religion means rules, it means, you know, governance, and I think it's so such an interesting portrayal that I'm, I'm really drawn to as I'm talking about it now, you know, I like talk about Jewishness is, is really bound by years of tradition and a strict adherence to a set of laws. Like that is a, a real component of a religion that you don't always see. And I would say that is the biggest marker of his Jewishness is that it represents for him, you know, th this overarching structure. It just occurred to me also that like, we don't see, like we know what he doesn't do on Shabbos. Right. But we don't see what he does do. I mean, you know, even though there's even a scene that's happening well, actually, I was a little bit confused about the details because it seemed like it was Friday. It seemed like it was maybe before Shabbat or I don't know. He like picked up the phone, which he right. didn't have done. And then he it's was like, an emergency. Yeah, it's like, an emergency. I, that part was like a little bit confusing. But, um, we, you know, we don't see what he does do on Shabbos, but we do know because there's this whole kind of subplot about a, a, a game that's supposed to be on a Saturday, which is. Right. That, that's where it all comes We from. haven't said we actually haven't said it out loud, but, you know, Shabbos being, you know, Friday at sunset to you know an hour past sunset on Saturday so this game that's supposed to happen on a Saturday he doesn't want to do mm -hmm. um 
And we know how important bowling is to him. And this idea that Shabbos is even more important, that he won't roll on Shabbos, is really cool. And even in terms of like the rule following, I mean, I'm sure uh, I'm sure there are, are, are very, you know, concrete reasons why one shouldn't bowl on Shabbat. But in terms of like what's in the Torah, you know, like it's actually it's actually him really keeping not just the observance of the day, but like and the laws, but really also the spirit of the day. Right. You know, like maybe there are religious Jews who would, you know, walk to a bowling alley and, you know, not have their phone and not use money and have it all figured out and they would do it. But He's saying, no, I'm not even doing that. It's Shabbos. Like, I can't roll on Shabbos. Right. I think there's actually a deleted scene on the DVD where we see Walter going to synagogue and having Shabbat dinner. Really? No, no, that was a oh, terrible I'm so I wish. Horrible. I'm saying, <laughs> I forgot yeah, about I forgot that about you. No, uh, no, I feel like that would be, I feel like we were robbed as, as Jews on film, you know, to sort of see what that would be like. I do want to, like, I think you talked about it, but I wanted to put like a Jewish word to it that I'm familiar with called like a chumrah, which is like a stringency. And I feel like, you know, people play bowling with bumpers and people play where they're, you know, willing to fudge it this way or that way. But like, I feel like because Walter is a convert and he's like, more dedicated than someone maybe who's like born into it and he he takes these humors these stringencies and he really dials it up a little bit so much so that he's willing like you said harry to like pull a gun on someone and to like threaten someone's life for like not following his torah so to speak so yeah and i i think that's also you know everything that you guys are saying and what you were describing julia is like we don't really see his proactive jewishness but we see the guardrails we see the restrictions you know we right. don't know we know that he was very hesitant to drive over on friday night and he does it reluctantly because any he even says here we are it's shabbos, shabbos the sabbath which i'm allowed to break only if it's a matter of life or death which is an awesome line and again it's a representation I, I feel like we haven't seen because a lot of times you get that token proactive scene, you know, people lighting the Shabbos candles, sitting down for a meal, but them showing only the restrictive sense, uh, only the restrictions kind of imposed by his Jewishness, you know, A, I think it it shows almost more depth than I feel like I've seen as someone because sometimes you, you see the glamorized part of Shabbos, you don't, right. or of Jewishness, you don't think about the restrictions, but I would also bet that's his relationship with his Jewishness is, is more defined by what he can't do not because he does like it's more defined by what he can't do because he is he's bound by rules and he likes his jewishness you know and maybe i'm reading too much into his character but he clings to his jewishness because of the the strictly defined rules that it has set forth and that's his draw more convincingly to me than him celebrating Shabbos. Like he doesn't seem like the guy who gets excited for Shabbos, but he is excited you know maybe to hold himself to rules maybe to tell people that he's keeping the rules but he I think as a character aligns much more to me with the restrictions of being Jewish than he does with the, you know, more proactive traditions that I think you pointed out he doesn't really do in the movie. Right. I, I don't know if I fully agree. So we haven't talked about another huge line of his mm -hmm. where the dude is saying, you know, it's all part of your sick Cynthia thing, man. And he says, you're living in the past. And there's a lot right. of here. And Walter says, 3,000 years of beautiful tradition from Moses to Sandy Koufax. You're goddamn right I'm living in the fucking past. I think that he's sharing like what he can't do on Shabbos, but he, he's also taking pride in being a part of 3,000 years of tradition. You know, he's not saying 3,000 years of things I can't do. Um, so I, it's just really interesting. And I also, 
Dale, you mentioned chumras. I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree that it's a chumra, but I do think of another Jewish phrase, which is mm -hmm. the idea of a fence around the Torah. You know, Again, so no. he's because there's no there's no bowling in the Torah, right? But like, <laughs> you know, you 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 have this idea of what of what Shabbat is is meant to be, and then you just have these kind of layers upon layers upon layers of like protecting that, mm -hmm. you know. And so if something is questionable, it's like, well, I, I really want to protect this idea of the day of rest and not working, you know, um, and I, I you know, it, you could see it as like overly legalistic and like maybe he just, you know, thinks of Shabbat as all the things he can't do. But I, I do think he's really treasuring it as well. Right. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. I, I agree with the kind of roundedness, you know, and I'm sure it's not only about uh, like, you know, the proactive and I think even when you hear the line about the tradition, part of me is thinking, you know, part of that tradition is adhering to laws that were, you know, invented before bowling existed and kind of adapting those. But, um, but yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting choice for the movie to portray only the restrictive parts of his Jewishness, you know, for this character. But, um, but, I, but I definitely hear you. And I think that there's probably a lot more to his, his character and his relationship with it. Sure. And like touching on your identity thing that you kind of posted at the beginning of the episode, like Walter's identity is like as a Jewish person, as a bowler, but like also as a veteran and things like that. So everyone's kind of got their shtick and the way that they, you know, act on that or like uh, personify that in the film is kind of something to call to think about as you're watching it. So I am curious about um, the way this, the way Walter's character is written and this Jewish identity of his, like there's a part of me that thinks like, well, maybe, maybe the Coen brothers just thought it would be really funny if this character who's ridiculous is also Shomer Shabbos. Like maybe they just thought that that would just be really fun and really funny. And they weren't necessarily thinking like this person's going to become a, a Shomer Shabbat icon to, you know, <laughs> young traditional Jews, you know, across the world. Uh, maybe, just, you know, it, it's a comedy. Maybe they just thought it would be really funny. Um, and they have enough uh, inside cultural knowledge to to pull it off in a realistic way so that nobody feels like they're being made fun of you know so what I'm what I'm kind of thinking about is like you know could Walter have been Walter without I don't roll on Shabbos you know like like is it just sort of like a a t-shirt slogan you know at this point um I, I think it's a big part of who he is. And, you know, I, maybe there's also some like academic discourse of like, it doesn't really matter what the Cohen brothers had in mind. Uh, but that's just one thing I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't going to hit you with the, uh, well, it doesn't matter what they intended because uh, I, I put don't it out there be, anyway. <laughs> I appreciate that because I don't need to be that. And also, I don't know what they were intending, but I, I wonder what the movie would lose if he doesn't say those, you know, if the Vietnam, right? Because he already has one piece of identity. Does he need the second? And for me, it kind of ropes into the nihilist angle, which again, the nihilist is villains, you know, they don't like, that's also could just be a memorable touch. Like let's make them nihilist, which gives them like a little bit of like a weird, funny character that people can draw to. I think there's an interplay of identity going on there. And I think that there's, you know, this kind of very zealous, you know, religious person kind of, you know, the way that he like talks about so dismissively of the nihilist, like they don't believe in anything, Donnie, you know, and the way he kind of feels oh. like. Does he call them Nazis them. too? He does. Yeah. Cause they're German also. So he calls them Nazis and the way that that kind of shapes his ideology there again, it's, it's, 
it's part of, I think, the plot of the movie that, like we said at the beginning, is existing in tension with the dude. And the dude doesn't care about anyone else's identity. And he's just a good, he's a good dude who's just like hanging out and doing his own thing. But I think it just, it adds to the, I guess, some of the the more thematic like identity politics that's going on in the world around the dude. And I think sets up a stronger contrast. And and yeah, and I just think fits in thematically there. And I'm willing to believe also that the Cohen brothers just had a Jewish friend who didn't roll on Shabbos. He said that once they thought it was hilarious and threw it in there, but could be more than that. They say, they, um, it seems like I was doing a little poking around. It seems like the character of Walter is based on a real person and that person is Jewish, you know, right. so. Makes sense. Um, yeah, this is kind of part of the constellation of character traits. I think to answer your earlier thought or or... I don't know if you were calling it a question or just like an idea. I started as a question and then I was like, I'm just going to say it. (laughs) There was a podcast before called The Nerdist a long time ago, and they had things called quements, which is like a a question and a comment together. (laughs) So let's call it a quement. Um, But, you know, I think uh, I think to answer your question or your quement about it, I think it would have worked if he was not Jewish, because I think he was such a, a, a. you know, such a great performance by Walter. And like, I think it's kind of like seasoning on food. It like added a little extra flavor. And like you said, Harry, it kind of works into other lines and, and, and sort of themes that we're kind of teasing out for the podcast. But I, w- I think having just like one thing as part of your identity would have worked for me. And, you know, maybe the Coens, like maybe that was their uh, comment or their, their, commentary rather on like organized religion and like like the the way that you know someone could be like I said so mean and so to to Donnie like I think about the way that like sometimes maybe I'm reading this a little bit too stretchy but like the way that sometimes people adhere to rules so fervently and yet like when it comes to like basic like kindness acts they're like they throw that kind of stuff out the window yeah yeah exactly like the Um, yes my Hebrew's bad i didn't grow up with hebrew (laughs) yeah i was like i was like (laughs) you know like the this idea of like uh, a a a good deed between a a man and a fellow a person and a fellow person and a a good deed between a person and like god so Mm. like like strictly adhering to like not bowling on shabbat but then meanwhile you're being so mean to your fellow friend and fellow human being like i feel like sometimes i've noticed that i'm not generalizing but i'm just you know i've I've seen that sometimes where like you'll do something for the sake of a mitzvah and like but it's at sometimes it's at like another human being's expense so Mm. just wanted to call that out before we move on so the plot continues after this failed uh, money handoff. The dude is later confronted by Lebowski, who hands him an envelope from the kidnappers, which contains a severed toe, which they're told belonged to Bunny. Uh, he's then contacted by Lebowski. The dude is then contacted by Lebowski's daughter, Maude, who explains that it was her people who stole the new rug from the dude, that it was taken from him because, you know, she said it was rightfully hers, you know, because it had come from her father's home. So she invites him over and tells him that her father had illegally withdrawn the ransom money from the family's foundation and that she's now commissioning the dude's help to retrieve that money that he had been given for the handoff. So the dude then receives a phone call from the police telling him that they've recovered his stolen car and he notices that the briefcase which he had left in the car there is missing and later on finds a piece of homework that belongs to a teenager named Larry Sellers. So Walter and the dude drive to Larry's house and interrogate him but are unable to get any information out of him. So 
Walter then tries to intimidate Larry by smashing a brand new sports car that he believes the teenager purchased with the stolen money, but ultimately it's revealed that it belongs to a different owner who comes out screaming onto the street and destroys the dude's car in retaliation. And this is kind of the lowest point for the dude and I think a good place to stop to talk about this part. Our, our poor tumbleweed. Yeah, I'll I'll mention it here because we were talking about the tumbleweed and we've mentioned this actually a lot of in our early episodes and haven't really found a movie where we could say this and again, but you know, the, the, the book of Job has become one of my favorite reference points for a lot of movie because any sort of melodrama oh. where just things are continually, you know, happening to someone, so bad things are continually battering someone, which is, you know, a melodramatic trope, but it's, it's obviously the core thesis of the book of Job, which is about this character who God kind of mercilessly punishes, you know, over and over again to test his faith. And at this point in the movie, we've seen the dude get, you know, beat up by random strangers multiple times. He's been drawn around. He's got Walter throwing him in one direction. He has Maude roping him into another thing. Like he is so, and at the, and now his car was destroyed by something that was completely not his fault. And I just, I, I wanted, I'd be remiss not to point out the Job connection because I feel like, you know, the, the tumbleweed, it's not just the tumbleweed. It, it's really almost like this consistently like, pushing down attack and and his escape from it which will come in kind of the later sections is just getting away from everything right there's no real retaliation from it is, is this the part where he just wants walter to just go bug off they have like a mini breakup is it yeah. is it here i think it's just after this where he's like driving home in his smashed car and it's like all walter's this, fault yeah. so he's kind of like pissed off yeah and the car i think was also messed up from being like like on a joyride and like right like wasn't it like he like picked it up at the at the impound lot yeah yeah he, yeah. he was so looking was for like... his credence tapes and they were i think they found the tapes the credence tapes but but the the, the briefcase full of money was uh mysteriously missing which later turned out to not have money but um yeah it's such a I know we're supposed to talk about the dude, but like, I really, I just keep thinking about Walter because, and not even the Jewish part of Walter, but you know, this is the part where like, you know, the viewer can't help but like hate Walter a little bit. Like he's just like so outlandishly terrible with all his choices. It's like that episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza just decides to do the opposite of his instincts because his instincts are just so bad. <laughs> Uh -huh. okay. and then when he does the opposite like things start going like swimmingly well for him like I, I feel that way about Walter like he should just do the opposite of of what he wants to do in any given moment um and and I think yeah I think we also get to the same a similar place as the dude where we're just sort of like enough already you know or like the Yiddish would be like genugshoin <laughs> Yeah. Oh, feel free, by the way, to sprinkle in Yiddish whenever applicable. I think that'll kind of like <laughs> amp up the Jewishness. I have a, I have a, I have a backseat uh, uh, Yiddish thing when we get to the end, so I'll make sure. Oh, to, I'll make sure to, to pull it out. I was just going to say that, like, I feel like Walter is kind of like the Yetzer Hara, like the evil inclination with a lot of this stuff. Like, he's often sitting on the dude's shoulder, who's like, again, this pacifist, just kind of like going with the flow, and Walter's like you got to do this, you got to do that. And he's like, no, I'm not going to intimidate some like little teenager. I don't really know, by the way, just side point, why was the kid's homework? Did we ever find that out? Or is that like not important to the plot? Why was it in the car? Yeah, I don't know that we ever find that. I think he was, I, mean, I think he stole the car, right? Oh, the I think he's the one who stole, stole the car. car. Ah, but he didn't take the money he, because, you know, there was no money. 
Well, he probably took the briefcase. Probably took the briefcase, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't admit to it. Interesting. Yeah, it's just, it's all like, I feel like Walter, like you said, Julie, like it's good reason to hate him. He's basically this inciting force that like is capturing the dude in his whirlwind and just making him do things he wouldn't otherwise do. And so I think it's good for them to kind of like cool off at this point. Um yeah, it's just there's there's so much stuff that we're not capturing in in this summary. There's all these subplots about like the, you know, Bunny's like film career and adult film and that whole thing. We're going to get into that, but like I think the dude discovers it and then we have this this is the part right when we're introduced to Maud and we so, sort of see her kind of doing her art and describing it. She her art. We have to describe what that looks like. <laughs> it's very some people have described it as vaginal, is that right? <laughs> Does that make you uncomfortable, Mr. Lebowski? I mean, Julianne Moore is like so good in this film. And like she had, you know, uh, a few years later, she was in Magnolia, another terrific performance. Uh, really big fan of, of Julianne Moore. So we, we should move forward to the next section because there's so much that happens there. But right before we do, you know, that that one iconic line that when Walter is destroying the, the nice Ferrari. Right. And he says, what are you doing? Here you go, Larry. You see what happens? You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens? This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass, Larry. Just fun fact about that scene, which I've always enjoyed, is that in the TV edit for the movie, it was famously changed to, this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. That's kind of the uh, the dubbing line. That's amazing. And it's just, it's one of the most famous, you know, for TV dubbed lines, because there's no other way to redeem that scene other than just bleeping out, you know, the, the most recurring lines. So uh, just a fun That's fact brilliant. about that scene. I love it. It really is clever. What? When you I'm sorry. Find I'm just a stranger so in the Alps. Is that right? I, find a stranger in the Alps. Yeah. Okay. So what happens? You find a stranger in the Alps. Wow. Um. <laughs> does it make sense in context? Not really. But how does the movie? Uh, sorry. How does the TV version deal with all the f bombs? Just bleeps. Friend or fa- we uh, we could probably look. Maybe you know, yeah. Maybe it bleeps. That's a great question. It's a great question. I always remember like watching Die Hard as a kid on TV and like the last scene where like uh, Bruce Willis is like pushing Hans Gruber down and he's falling down the, he says, yippee Kaye, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different weight. Yeah, for sure. And it's like totally not Bruce Willis's voice. So um, anyway, um, very good fun fact. I, I like that. I want to, I feel like we should probably stitch <laughs> that in. Some, in. Yeah, for sure. Um, so moving on to uh uh, you know, kind of the dude is then abducted by the thugs of Jackie Treehorn. He's a porn film director who Bunny has owed money to. I think she was in a movie called Log Jammin', if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the one who originally sent the guys to the dude's house, he demands to know where Bunny is and what happened to his money. The dude tells Jackie Treehorn that Bunny faked her own kidnapping and that his money is with Larry Sellers. The dude passes out after drinking a spiked white Russian given to him by Treehorn, and he has an intense dream sequence in which he envisions a elaborate Busby Berkeley-style musical bowling sequence featuring himself and Maude. When he comes to, he is arrested and taken to a local police station where the police chief threatens him and warns him to stay the F out of Malibu. Um, I left, yeah. so Now that I live in LA, I just found that whole scene to be so funny. Like yeah. We've got a we've got a quiet little beach town here, right. Malibu. Malibu. Doesn't he call him a fascist or something like that? He gets really pissed off at this like authority figure. 
I think this is our like first introduction to police. Like every well, no, I guess he interviews the the police interview him, but like his first kind of confrontation in a way with authority and like. Yeah. And we've gotten like references it. in the past, I think, to the dude being kind of this like protester from like you know an era like a seventies kind of thing. Like he, mm -hmm. he mentions he's he actually mentions at one point uh, Mod, I think that he was part of the Seattle Seven. And I uh -huh. uh, thought of you, Daniel, at that, and I looked it up. Apparently, it's a real thing that like the character who inspired the dude was actually a part of. It was like some big protest thing. And what was so the Seattle clear... Seven? Do you know? Could you educate us? I'm Offhand, no. But okay, I can... don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll put that in the bonus clips. I appreciate the shout out though. Yes, yeah, yeah. I do like also how he's like watching TV. There was some line, I think like he's watching TV at Ralph's at the beginning and it's like George Bush is like saying some sort of line. And then like later he sort of parrots that line to Mr. Lebowski Sr., like word for word. So he's kind oh, of just. I missed that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's he's pretty, he's pretty funny in that way. Like in terms of his beliefs, it's just like, it's a little fluid, you know? Um, but yeah, any thoughts on this section? If anyone has any uh, interesting things to add about the musical sequence, because that's obviously one of the most iconic moments in the film. And, you know, I've seen pictures of people dressing up for, uh, what, what did we call the Dude Fest? I'm sorry, I keep forgetting. I think it's called... Or just like Dudeism, which by the way is totally Lebowski Fest? Lebowski Fest makes sense. And Dudeism is like, kind of like Jew, Jewism, Judaism, you know? Okay, I mean, there's, okay. There's a clear sure. parallel. I don't know where sure, why not? But I've just seen you know people dress up in all those outfits and stuff. But yeah, yeah. I was gonna say about the musical sequence um, or like the fantasy sequence in general that like it also held up so well because I, I mm -hmm. remembered it and I was like, oh, but that's not gonna work out. But like it does, and the music is oh, like I'm gonna I can't I'm gonna regret trying to do this on a podcast. But it, like what? Yeah, there's that. But I was also thinking of like nine 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 nine. I can't I can't do it. But there was like a there's like a very specific. Um, melody that just like popped into my head the second you guys were talking about the sequence and um and i think that and the stranger um framing i kind of add both add this sort of like mythical quality to the whole thing yeah it's interesting i think in in this musical sequence he's like flying right and then he like goes through a bunch of people's legs and i feel like he's wearing like a handyman outfit. So I'm not if, I'm not sure if that's like a reversal of his slacker persona. It's a very obvious stretch and like, you know, we're we're kind of like sub sub subtext, but I was just like, yes, obviously he's kind of mimicking the the porn outfit that he saw when he was watching the tape of Log Jamming and Bunny Blavatsky, sure. But I was just going to say that like in a sense it's very much a fantasy that like he's this working person who's like a handyman who's like able to like fix things and and not only like solve cases, but also just be like a worker bee. Whereas now he's just kind of a slacker. That's the dude. That's my stretch. But yeah, I, I like the stretch because also we haven't really talked about this. I mean, we've talked about sort of the like the hijinks of him being mistaken for this, you know, very wealthy Lebowski. But this is so much about class. I mean, this is, you know, he he's not a handyman. He's he's not a, uh, you know a blue collar worker, you know, out there earning his keep. It's unclear to me how he's even paying rent at all. We see, we see exchanges with this, like, you know, kind of, you know, sad, but like also a dancer landlord oh, yeah. character. It's unclear to the viewer where Lebowski ever gets money ever to pay rent, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, 
Please. He's behind like, on his rent. Like his, but his landlord is very passive. He's like, "Hey, whenever you got a chance." And yeah, you could kind of pay and then like, and then, the and then there's this like sweet scene. They like go to the landlord's like you know interpretive dance recital. You know, um, but I, but you know, this is also about class. I mean, this is about like the 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 huge distance in the stratosphere between someone like Bunny or Maud or you know the Big Lebowski. Um, and the and the dude, and then we learn about the big Lebowski that he doesn't actually have any of the money that he presents himself with. You know, he has like this whole wall of just like awards and things, and holds himself up in this you know very revered. But he isn't actually as wealthy as he says he is. He's probably not as successful. I think Maud even says like, "Oh yeah, we let him run the charities because we wanted to give him something to do to feel good about himself and like you know flirt with his ego." Like, there's a real you know balance of people like you know, trying to flaunt and get themselves into, I think, you know, a higher class and people who like the dude are probably more comfortable kind of coasting where they are, you know, even when like Walter's like, we have to take the money a million dollars. He's not really interested. He's happy with where he is. I mean, yeah, I, I do think that like he is hurting for money, but because, you know, like he said, he's back on rent or he's, you know, behind on rent and things like that. And but is, really he, feel... is he behind on it or did I think the guy just says, you know, tomorrow is like the 10th. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, means rent's due tomorrow. And uh, I think okay. the dude's like, okay. Like, I, I didn't I, get the sense that he was uh, struggling. I thought there. he was behind. Well, like, I think he's behind. And I I, I, I think like he's the... like, the, the landlord's like very meek. Yeah. But like, is trying to ask him to pay. Right. And the dude's not paying, not because he's so chill, but because he doesn't have the money. Right. But right. I also got the impression from the scene that they've had this conversation like a million times before. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the landlord's like tired of bringing it up, but he's like such a nice guy who's busy with his interpretive dancing that he's like, yeah, I don't, you know, I feel bad bothering you. But if you could pay the rent, that'd be great, you know. Right. Harry, I was thinking when you're saying about like how the, you know, the other Lebowski, Lebowski, the quote unquote rich Lebowski is is really just, you know, playing, playing a role, right? Like it right, turns yeah. out that he's just sort of, you know, not even pushing papers around but just you know like pretending to to be um this huge you know mega bucks kind of guy and he really he isn't but like there's there's so much of that that happens at the end of the movie like the final act is like so many things turn out to be not what they seemed or not how right. they profess to be and maybe the fact that the dude and walter and unfortunately not so much poor Donnie, but maybe also Donnie a little bit, but like the dude and Walter especially is that they are really who they are. And mm -hmm. there's no, um, like in terms of like character development in a classical sense of like people changing. Yeah. No. Neither of them change, you know, everything just kind of happens around them and their circumstances change. And even the bad guys change like quite literally like the bad guys keep being different people and then they turn out to oh, not right, be that bad right, and right, right. you know um but the the dude and walter are who they are and they're really real and they're really consistent and everyone else is kind of a a faker maybe not maud i don't know we haven't we haven't given maud her due that she's also an amazing character yeah she's she's interesting because like she's also somewhat is the right can I say duplicitous? Is that is that fair to say? Like in some way, like she's she has her ulterior motives with mm. Mr. Lebowski with with the dude. I should say sorry. She has her ulterior motives with the dude, and like the dude is kind of oblivious to these ulterior motives. Like uh, I'm not sure at this point in the movie. I think they have gone to bed together. Is that correct? At this point, 
No, no, no. Okay, the first sentence in our next beat. I'll save my shtick, but I want. I do want to give Maud her due. Before we move on, I'm going to let you move on. Yeah, I I would be remiss not to. I'm going to tie together a couple of things we were talking about because I wanted to talk about some of the growth that I think happens in the movie and the real turning point for the dude. And I want to take us back to that you know Busby Berkeley sequence because mm-hmm. you know that that whole number because it. I, I, I'm going to put together, you know, I, I hope you're ready for this because this is going to be a little bit of like a stretch, a little bit, you know, okay, metaphor. I got but... my ticket for the stretch. Train. Please. Oh, yeah. Get, get ready for this. Very Jewish. <laughs> so, right. You remember that sequence? He, you know, goes down the stairs, descends into wherever, you know, there's this whole bowling thing, throws the bowling ball. And, you know, what what happens? We, we spoke about this before. He, you know, goes through all these women's legs, right? Mm-hmm. And like he's he's going through their legs. It's like, you know, of course, there's like a sexual a- aspect to it. He turns over, he gets this big smile on his face. But I don't think it's such a stretch to say that there's like a, a birthing element of it. You know, he's passing oh, through okay. kind of the open legs. He gets out on the other side. And what's the first thing that happens, if you remember? What What's he like chased by, right? What immediately converges on him are, it's the scissor guys. It's the guys that are holding the scissors, ah. kind of chopping him. And if you remember, those scissor people are threatening the, the reason he's dreaming about them is because earlier in the scene they threatened to cut off his penis right it's johnson. That, okay really it's it's johnson. johnson right exactly they, they cycle through the different names of it cut off your johnson lapowski <laughs> and what does that make you think of you know kind of cutting yourself there right after you're born right oh, yes. like this. Decision thing going on. <laughs> so dude right oh this is god my, this, this is, is good where we stuff. Got him. so what i'm trying to pitch here is that in this scene, right? And it's obviously Freudian too, you know, that kind of fear of, you know, losing your, your Johnson as we as we just called it. But there's something real about, there's a rebirth happening here. You know, he's passing through the legs. He's coming out on the other wow. side. He has this kind of circumcision. And I'm not sure if that's, if he if he's becoming Jewish and that kind of leans into what he's going with this or if it's just part of the kind of rebirthing metaphor. But from that point on in the movie, you know, everything else that happens, he, he finally, I think, makes sense of what's going on. Like he mm-hmm. wakes up from being blacked out and I didn't get what happened. I was like, why was he knocked out by Jackie Treehorn? And he walks home and his place is a mess. And I forget who he tells it to, but immediately he's like, yeah, they they drugged me so that they could raid my house because they didn't believe me that the money was with Terry. Like he starts to put everything mm-hmm. together. And that kind of, I think, spirals into the whole confrontation where he just like, he learns new information from Mod, and we're about to get into this. That leads him to go back to confront the Lebowski, like, uh, Jeff Lebowski, like from this point forward, he's he's done getting pushed around. He's done being apathetic. He's kind of fully transitioned to, you know, not necessarily proactive, because I, I agree. I think he had been until this point, but he's going to determine his own destiny now and he's going to stop being pushed around. He is reborn, awoken from this and is like ready to, you know, set his path straight. And I don't think he takes shit from anyone after that. You know, even with Walter, he like stands up to him more right. and that. That to me is the big turning point of the movie. This whole rebirth scene. I love it, Harry. Stretch of the pot award goes to you. <laughs> Wait, I'm gonna it. stretch it. I'm gonna stretch it further. Please, please, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, please. This is, and this is with the with this is with the like you know art is art is to be interpreted by us that it doesn't really matter what the artists have in mind. Okay, <laughs> exactly. We talked about the Book of Job, mm-hmm. but Harry, what you're saying is making me think of a different Jewish story. Okay. Of misfortune after misfortune after misfortune, and then a dream in the middle of the night. And then the fortune changes, the book of Esther, okay. um, which I wonder, I mean, you yeah. know, again, I don't, I don't think they were consciously like, and then we're going to pull a book of Esther, you know, turning yeah. point. But, you know, there really is this, is, uh, uh, in the book of Esther, uh, King Akashverosh can't sleep. I guess it's not a yeah. dream, but it's like a middle of the night sequence. Um, and and it's th- that point where he discovers, you know, that's, that, that, 
whatever Mordecai helped him, and he didn't know it's like it. Read me just, a story, right? So I can go yeah, back to there's like a of... there's like a book of there's like Stories? a log of it almost I I I almost in my memory it's almost like like a like a journal of like everything that's happened like around the palace, you know. So like a blog, but from a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's a like it's a live a journal. Blog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Open diary, you know. Um, but anyway, I just thought of the Book of Esther in terms of like this kind of night dreamy sequence, and then after that, your fortunes change. Right. I mean, oh, Jews wow. are really big into dreams. I feel like Joseph had some pretty solid dreams. It's a lot of dreams. Um, no musical yeah. dreams. I I don't know of any. I mean, I know Joseph. Technicolor dream coach, sure, we could go there, but I think, you know. But I, think, I, I agree with you. I think that that's a big Jewish theme, you know, dreams kind of being that turning point for someone's fate, whether it's because they're, you know, you're getting sort of like this, uh, what's it like that divine inspiration, like mm -hmm. a, uh, I'm trying to think of like Navua. How would I say that? Like a prophecy? Prophecy. Thank yeah. you. That's the word. Thank you. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, the concept of just sort of going under getting this prophecy kind of where your fate is changing or just having these seminal moments happen while people are sleeping. Like, you know, whether or not they were pulling directly from the book of Esther, I think it, it is, maybe that's a stretch, but I do think it is fair to say that they recognize this concept of things changing, you know, fate changing through a dream. Totally. I mean, the book of Esther is definitely a stretch because as I was saying it, I realized it wasn't actually a dream sequence, but, uh, right. you know, right. but, but still, I mean, these otherworldly, you know, this idea that, you know, in the middle of the night, like these kind of like surreal spiritual things can happen, you know, is I think pretty totally. Jewish or maybe it's just spiritual you know I don't right. know I mostly I mostly am a uh fluent in in Jew speak but I I think it could also just sort of be like you know we uh it's part of like part of the myth making is like you know these kind of like like when you're not totally with it you know that's when kind of interesting things happen totally yeah. and by the way I mean he's smoking pot like i mean like throughout the a lot we talk yeah. about all the time. you know not not being fully plugged into reality right yeah for sure he's constantly drinking constantly smoking weed that may affect his his perception i think but to be fair like you said harry he was drugged so i mean i think right. that might have a lot to do with it um i'm gonna wrap this uh story up so kind of like, yeah totally um so as we were talking about a few minutes ago um, you know, the dude returns home uh, where Maude is waiting for him. She reveals that her father, Jeff Lebowski, has no money of his own, that his wealth, in fact, came from her late mother. So this leads the dude and Walter to confront Jeffrey Lebowski, where they find that Bunny has returned, having simply gone out of town without telling anyone. The dude then realizes that Bunny's nihilist friends fake the kidnapping to blackmail Jeff Lebowski, who in turn embezzled money from the family charity blaming its dis disappearance on the blackmailers. The briefcase given to the dude never contained any money. An enraged Walter tips Jeffrey Lebowski out of his wheelchair and a final confrontation outside of the bowling alley. The nihilists set fire to the dude's car and demand the ransom money that they think still exists. Walter fights them off. I believe he throws like a bowling ball at one of them. But during the altercation, poor Donnie, played by Steve Buscemi, dies from a heart attack. Walter scatters Donnie's ashes from a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and they have a nice, meaningful service. Um, and afterwards, the dude and Walter go bowling to mourn Donnie. Uh, at the alley, the dude encounters the stranger, the film's narrator, played by Sam Elliott, who's drinking his sarsaparilla drink. And he sums up everything that happened in the movie, noting that he didn't like seeing Donnie go. I think he says something like, uh, you know, sometimes 
you beat the bear and sometimes the bear beats you, kind of. But we'll talk about that in a second. He remains optimistic and he reveals that Maude is pregnant with a little Lebowski on the way. And that's where our film ends. So a like it's a, a cycle of life. It's a lot of, uh, it's a, I think, do they call the kid Donnie? I forget. Do they mention something like that or am I making it up? I think it just maybe. says a little Lebowski. Little Lebowski. Way. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, maybe, maybe in the sequel. That'll yeah. come out someday. There was a Probably. sequel that starred John Turturro only. Uh, it, it was about, uh, I'll look it up. It was supposed to be, but I don't think it ever came out unless. Unfortunately, it did. <laughs> oh, God. It did? Oh, then maybe yeah. I'm thinking of something else. Yeah, we haven't even talked about John Tuturo's, uh performance as Who's Jesus. Who's literally named Jesus, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the most, Jew, you know. Um, but yeah, you go ahead. And, we'll, we'll, let's talk about this, and then I'll I'll look up some information about this film. I, I want to mention, um, um, I promise I had a little Yiddish in my back pocket. Um so one thing I noticed watching the movie recently is that at the end, when the stranger comes back, um, he he says the word Tukas. He says, Darkness washed over the dude. Darker than a black steer's Tukas on a moonless prairie night. Love so that's Tukas. That's, that's, that's butt. That's tush. And I, it blew my mind a little bit because I was like really ready to like, talk about Walter's Jewishness and what that means and all of that. Uh, and then I'm like, wait, like the stranger just said Tuchus. <laughs> what is going on? You know, um, I, I don't know if that necessarily means that the stranger is Jewish, but it to me, it just sort of pointed at a sort of a, a, a general wink and a general Jewish flavor um, that the Coen brothers are giving to the entire story. Um, and I, I do suspect that they also just thought it would be really funny. I mean, I don't know what a, a viewer who isn't familiar with Tuchus, like you have to like translate it from Tukus to Tuchus. Like you, ha- like there's a lot of work you have to know, do to even figure out what he's saying. Um, but that really blew my mind a little bit. I yeah, wanted to I'd... update you just real quick about the follow-up on the Jesus movie. The movie's called The Jesus Rolls. It oh, came out in 2019. Um, really? Not, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's rated at 4.4 out of 10 on IMDb, according to 4,000 ratings. So I don't know if we're going to be discussing that one on any, anytime soon, but we, yeah, it's funny that like, I think a lot of these characters and a lot of these subplots that we, of course, you know, we don't have that much time on the podcast to discuss everything, but like, we didn't even mention Jesus. It's crazy, but Harry, go ahead back to you. So much to say about Jesus being, I mean, there's a lot of irony there and like some of the lines, maybe we can pull one where Walter is saying to him, like, like he, Jesus gets very upset about them moving the game for Shabbos, you know, and whatever, there, there's some obvious, like, you know, he wouldn't care. He's like, whatever, I'll, I'll beat you on Wednesday or whatever. But um, just the, the Tukas thing, I, I think it's, you know, and Tukas, because that's kind of how he says it. But I think everything you're saying about a, maybe it was just funny, but also be like being a knowing wink, I think fits in with that. I mean, he's the frame, right? So the frame is like, you know, read into this. There's some like Jewishness to kind of the the packaging and presentation of this. And I think it's also funny, you know, in the scene, like you were saying, if someone's not going to make that leap and it took me even a second, you know, someone who's more familiar with the edit to kind of place that that was, he was I'm like, did he just say to us? Like, is that what he's talking about? I think if you don't have that background, it's just like weird, you know, cowboys speak. Like there's that line earlier, Daniel, you mentioned about like, you know, either you eat the bar or the bar eats you. Like the bear, I have to put on subtitles. Well, no, he says the bar. That's my, Oh, does he? 
He said, "I no, he means the bear." Oh, but okay. It yeah. sounded like the bar, and until I like put on subtitles, right? Because it, I didn't have subtitles when I was watched the first scene. He mentions it, but then when he brought it up at the end, I was like, "Oh, is he saying the bear the whole time?" And I think that's where this took us plays in that it's just right, like right, right, it's right. just part of like cowboy speak, and I think there's like a there's a real you know humor to that saying that like you know Yiddish is like you know cowboy speak almost. You know, and what that says about Yiddish or cowboys or both. I mean, it's almost as like foreign to the average viewer, right? Like they're both sort of these old, old languages that like people, some people speak it fluently and like the stranger certainly knows what he's saying, but the dude is sometimes not really following what he's saying. And I I feel like also the dude has his own dudisms and like some of what he says doesn't really make some sense to anyone else but him. Like everyone speaks their own language. You know, it's uh, it's very interesting. I think, yeah, I feel like poor Donnie. I feel, you know, so bad for him. He's constantly just like trying to, you know, wedge his way into these like intense conversations between Walter and the dude and is always shut down by Walter. Um, You know, he's just a very curious, let's go on a stretch train journey, right? So like, I'm assuming that the dude is this lapsed Jew. Like, I'm just even though like maybe he's like this Polish person of Polish or this person of Polish descent. In my mind, he's like an unaffiliated Jew. Um, And Walter is this like sort of, um, you know, like a convert, very, very zealous. And like Donnie's just a curious Jew who like wants to ask questions and wants to be like included in this conversation about what's going on and is always sort of shut down by this like overzealous guy and uh i know i'm already jumping into themes for the next section but i just wanted because you know poor donnie i feel bad for him you know and i love steve buscemi he's great so and also like this whole thing about you know you don't break shabbat unless it's a matter of life or death i mean there's a main character who like literally dies you know it's sort of it's it's uh i mean like you know the movie's a comedy it's a dark comedy at parts but like it, it it you know there's a moment with the the funeral and the ashes that is just like ridiculously darkly funny like the wind is blowing in the wrong direction and they get like ashes like all over themselves right right um but yeah i was thinking about that too when we were talking earlier about walter's observance and you know he is flexible he does end up breaking shabbos to help and then he's ticked because it's not actually a matter of life or death and then someone does actually end up dying right I don't want to say it's his fault, but like, you know, there's a certain sequence of events that Walter absolutely had a huge role in that did Mm -hmm. lead to the death of a human. Yeah. Yeah. Including, I mean, initiating the attack against them. Like the dude, I think, wanted to just walk away. And Walter was like, no, we're fighting them. We're settling this. Right. Well, he's a soldier. He's a tough Jew, you know, he's not going to back Right. He's a soldier and he's a religious, you know, he's very passionate about his religion and he's fighting these nihilists who represent, you know, somewhat of the opposite. No belief in anything. nothing. Yeah. Right. But I feel like it's kind of a, you know, they clearly are capitalists in some way, like they're blackmailing and bribing. So th- I feel like it's just this sort of like facade that they put on. They dress in their black. They put out, then they put out like a Bauhaus style record we see at some point, like they have, you know, I mean, I think it's just, I think it's bullshit, frankly, like they're this whole persona that they put on. I know it's not a hot take. The movie came out in 96. I'm not like, you know, <laughs> but I, I I don't know. I, I um You heard it here first. I know. Breaking news, <laughs> Daniel thinks the nihilists are bullshit. Like obviously the film, you know, takes the piss out of them as well. But uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. I think, you know, the takeaway for me is they should have just had like a little card at the end, you know, in loving memory, Donnie. Just you know. 
<laughs> he's a victim of all this stuff. I think everyone is a victim of Walter's like overbearing, just extraness, I guess. I don't know how else to say it, but yeah. Mm. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll rate this film, The Big Lebowski, on a scale of one to five stars of David in terms of its content, its themes, and its cast and crew. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Julie Sugar to rate the film, The Big Lebowski, on a scale of one to five stars of David. Harry, would you like to get us started? Yeah, for sure. So, um, uh, you know, cast and crew, that's kind of all we, where we start with. And uh, the Coen brothers, you know, are worth mentioning. You know, part of the reason why I think we were excited about this movie, obviously, it has a lot of Jewish content, but the Coen brothers are very Jewish filmmakers. We've covered, you know, maybe some of their more explicitly, explicitly Jewish films, you know, definitely more so than this one when we did uh, A Serious Man. But um, but they always infuse, I mean, certainly a lot of, you know, thematic depth, whether you want to read that as Jewishness, which I think, I think we have to a certain point. And then, of course, they they insert a lot of content in there in, in the context of uh, of Walter, who is, you know, it, we, we, we joked about this that like, and not even joked, I think we confirmed that, you know, they did know someone who was like Walter, but that that much was clear because their their depth of knowledge was not the sort of tokenization, like let's throw in a Jewish character and have him, you know, light a Shabbos candle and kind of call that Jewish. Like there were some deep cuts here that I really appreciated. So that, that kind of bleeds into my answer for um, content, which I think was as a movie, you know, I, I don't think you would mistake this movie for a Jewish movie. I think there's some stuff going on below the surface, whether that's in the, in the structure of it and whether you want to call it like, you know, a morality play or a, uh, like a, uh, a meta, like this sort of metaphorical read that we're talking about this fable, you know, and not that that is something that's in, inherently Jewish, but certainly, you know, there's some spirituality to a lot of the story. But I think in terms of its actual surface level content, it's enough that it's going to get a couple points for me without getting into numbers, the, the Jewish stuff, because not only is there so much, you know, just mentioning of words like Shabbos Jewish stuff like that, but also the depth and the way that they explore that and everything we were saying before, which I really want to point out again, which is just this representation of someone Jewish in relation to their restrictions and what they can't do. And on Shabbos, it was, that was a real deep portrayal of a Jewish character. Like I, I read one summary to start this, this episode off. That was, uh, you know, that was kind of, you know, sparse, but there was a second one that said, you know, you know, the dude's friend, the very Jewish, you know, Walter, whatever, like that is so clearly part of his identity. I think you can't think of his character without thinking of his Jewishness. So there, there's a lot of content there. I, and I, I'm kind of setting this up for everyone else because, you know, Cowan Brothers, Walter, plenty of Jewish content. But I want to hear from the rest of you. I, I've gotten to say a bunch of themes so far. So if anyone wants to add to just the Jewishness of the themes of which I think there are plenty. I think, you know, without giving it away, I'm going to end up giving this a couple points. But, uh, you know, Julie, I, I remember you you were saying that you had some stuff you wanted to add to the theme. So why uh, why don't you mention some yeah. of those now? Yeah, I um you know, this podcast is called Jews on Film. And I feel like the character of, of Walter is just such um, a massively uh, kind of sticky, right? Like, like we really, you know, anyone who's seen The Big Lebowski really remembers his character. And if you're Jewish, and if you live in, you know, a Shabbos world or Shabbos adjacent world, I think there's a lot of pride Um sorry if you live in a Shabbos world it's also the kind of world where you watch Coen Brothers movies <laughs> you know there's a lot of lot of lot of pride in 
seeing this depiction. And I think what's so interesting about it thematically is that here is a very popular movie, a cult, you know, a cult classic, almost like the definition of a cult classic, where not only is there a Jewish character, it's a character who has actively embraced um, being Jewish, becoming Jewish. Um, they're, they're go if it's happened before the movie started, but he went in the direction of Judaism and Shabbos and a Jewish life. And there are so many pop culture instances of people, you know, fictional and non-fictional who, I don't know if that's a word, fictional and real people who, who are going in the other direction, you know, like, like there's a lot of, um, you know, very popular stories of people leaving religious observance and leaving, you know, Shabbos, Shabbos observant communities. And it's, I find it thematically to just be really positive and exciting um, to see representation from someone who's also just like so unique, uh, but also feels like he can really carry, you know, Jewish pride and, and religious Jewish pride. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, you know, Walter is one of these, uh, like you said, in in the canon of like modern day Jewish characters, I feel like he is probably on the Mount Rushmore among, you know, just a few other characters that we'll probably discover at some point in our podcast, Harry. And I do think it's that we should make a t-shirt with a Mount Rushmore of Jewish characters because Walter sure. would definitely be on there. Um, you know, I, I did, you know, all of what you said, Harry, cast and crew, we, you know, we talked about it and, and like the story, not super Jewish. I think we're where the, the film, you know, borders on stretch for me, but also like get some points is like this idea of like identity and like um, and a sense of belonging. Like everybody wants to be something, you know, I, you know, the nihilists have their club and then, you know, the thugs and Jackie Treehorn, like everyone has like a very specific role. Like you want to be the, Lebowski's like, a, he belongs to this like rich group of people. And then like Donnie, like I said before, kind of like wants to fit in with the bowlers and, and this, you know, I, I think it's a real thing with, within Judaism, like certain Jews dress a certain way, they all behave a certain way. And like a lot of people will adopt a, a method of dress or a way of being or a way of behaving uh, in order to like sort of fit in with that. I think, you know, the nihilists are like a great example of like these people who, you know, dress in black and like are very specific about how they interact with the world. Walter is a little bit of a funny situation because like he's a very strict follower of rules, but he doesn't dress the part of what you would traditionally see as, as like a religious Jew or an observant Jew. Um, and then the dude is just... He's a wandering Jew, you know, he's like this sort of person who's floating through the world and kind of trying to get by. But, uh, you know, for me, that's where it scored some Jewish points. But, uh, yeah, mostly stretch, but still all, all the things we kind of touched on. Yeah, I'm all here for it. Numbers wise, what are we thinking? Because I know that's like why most people tune into this podcast so that we can give it an arbitrary rating of one to five <laughs> Jewish stars of David. Uh, Julie, do you want to start us off? Man, um, not speaking to the quality of the film, just no, how no, Jewish no, the Jewishness of the film, yeah, maybe two and a half, but it's like two stars are Walter, <laughs> you know? okay, 
two stars of Walter and half two a star. star and, and half a star. I, I, I don't know. I, I reserve the right to change my mind. Uh, sure. As we noted before, I'm very, uh, very easily persuaded. So sure. that's fine. <laughs> Can we call them like stars of dude instead of stars of David? <laughs> stars of dude. I mean, then we're practicing dudism, which is fine. You know, I think I'm that's a... in the spirit. Right. Absolutely. Harry, how about yeah. yourself? Yeah, I, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm also, I can be persuaded, especially when I get to go second. So I'm kind of thinking same, you know, two stars for Walter. And like, he really is such a good chunk. But, you know, we did the summary. I, I, I mentioned this in the beginning like we didn't mention any of the jewishness in the summary of the movie because it just wasn't in the plot and then again this movie is a lot more plot than movie like this movie you know uniquely is about character and you know vibe for lack of a better word so two two and a half I, it's honestly it's a pretty good number just because i think there is some thematic stretch jewishness but i don't think you're really what you're not watching this and thinking this is the Jewish movie. It, it definitely is the movie with the big Jewish characters, but it's not so Jewish. So I can't really give it more than two and a half. So I'll stick with that, with that two and a half. I actually like that number. Sure. Yeah, I think that works. Um, yeah. You know, I think, no, 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 I, that wasn't my We rage. all agree. Great. Okay. <laughs> Woo. Done. Great End work. Podcast. Two and a half. Three, three Jews. What opinion. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, I feel that like, uh, you know, I think what you're, what you're all saying, I'm kind of on board with, I think, you know, the, um, one last idea that I'll kind of wedge in here is that, like I said at the beginning, it's kind of like a neo-noir film and it's kind of loosely inspired by the work of Raymond Chandler. So it's kind of like little episodes or little segments and like a lot of characters in the film and they're all kind of, um, you know, not like a Parsha of the week, but like, you know, there's different stories that we're kind of following and they're kind of larger than life. So I'm going to maybe, I, I, I mean, for the sake of like, you know, peace and love and, harmony and all that stuff. I'll also go with two and a half. I think it's, you know, it's, it's not a super Jewish movie on the, on the surface, but there's a lot of like Walterness plus some stretches. So I think I'm right on board. Um, I do maintain that Lebowski's Jewish just because Lebowski sounds very Jewish. And like, I was like Googling is Jeff Lebowski, the dude Jewish. And, you know, I, I didn't I come actually... up I think I read somewhere that with the robe, the hair and all that, he's kind of supposed to be Jesus. You right. Know, I heard that rain, which honestly, Jewish. I don't know if that helps or hurts your case, right? Because <laughs> he was Jewish. He's also Jesus. So that, I mean, that, that kind of feels like a two and a half, right? That's Should I change it to three then? Or I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Maybe like 1.25 for Walter, since I wasn't a big, as big of a fan as uh, Walter, as you were, Julie, but like maybe one, you know, one and a quarter for like, for each of them. And then, you know. Seven five. Anyway. That's a good number. Yeah. So the two and a half. Yeah. Wrong. I, don't get me wrong. I, I also think Walter's kind of terrible. <laughs> you okay, know what good. I mean? Like, Glad like, we I, cleared I, that. I'm up. not like a Walter yes. fan in terms of like, you know, I I I wouldn't I wouldn't He's want him to be model. my best friend. Yeah, sure. but but as a Jewish character, I find him to be, and and as a very specific kind of Jewish character, I find right. him to be just like marvelously depicted. Yeah. Um, and I like Harry. Were you the person who said something about like the vibe? Who, who said vibe? Someone said vibe. Of I think the I movie. mentioned vibe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that'd be so interesting also. I mean, we've already been talking for a while, so we, we, we shouldn't add another hour of talking. But, um, but it would be really interesting to think about the whole movie, not from plot, and just to think about it from vibe perspective, you sure. know, and yeah. how is it Jewish or not? It's interesting because, and we've had many conversations about, you know, movies just having a Jewish feel to it and a Jewish aesthetic. I mean, that's a totally different way to, and you know, a totally different entry point for this question of Jewishness. That's totally applicable. 
and I don't know. Part of me thought when you were saying that that you know maybe in you know my sort of uh, uh, way of thinking about what a Jewish movie would be would be a little bit more structured, a little bit more plotted, a little bit more kind of like focused than the way that this movie. I mean, it ultimately is a puzzle box that really does, you know, rope and well together. And I'm not sure if that's everyone else's idea of what like a Jewish structure is. And maybe, you know, a, a Talmudic structure, for example, is a lot more tangential and a lot more random and a lot more taking one plot and kind of running away with it, which I guess this movie also does in some ways. But right. I I don't know if my immediate read of the structure of this movie, the vibe and that energy is is so Jewish. If anything, I almost feel like I, I want to, be sure to say this carefully. I almost feel like the vibe of the movie is Dafka, specifically not Jewish. Like it, there, there, it's not, you know. And and look, it's it's twenty twenty three. We 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 know we know that phrases like somebody not seeming Jewish or somebody not looking Jewish or something not feeling Jewish. We we know that that's problematic. And Subjective. you know, and even and by the way, even all of our Yiddish phrases like you know, y- Yiddish does not equal Jewishness, right? That's a uh, you know particular you know Ashkenazi Jewish uh, background. But I do think part of what is interesting just to go back to Walter again, like. I think there's something surprising about him, you know, um, there's something almost not subversive, but there's something unexpected about how dedicated he is to Shabbos and to right. his Jewish identity. And that's, I think, part of what makes him so um, memorable. And so, um, you know, in the end, we it's part of at least why I forgive him a lot of his faults, because we see what he loves and he really does love it very tenderly and passionately. Yeah. So you mochel him. So he's good for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. He's all <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Awesome. Except for the whole Donnie thing. Right, I know. Yeah. I, I miss poor Donnie. Well, Julie, Sugar, thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film to discuss The Big Lebowski. I wanted to ask if there's anything you wanted to plug or promote at this time. Sure. Um, I'll promote the two organizations that I feel very connected to. Uh, one is Yiddish Pop, which is a, uh, that's, Yiddish and then pop.com, which is a website that teaches Yiddish using um, short animated movies. Uh, I'm the scriptwriter. I haven't written every single movie that's on there, but I've written a lot of them with help. And it's free and it's fun and it's interactive. Uh, and then I also fairly recently started working as the managing editor at the Jewish Review of Books. It's a quarterly print magazine. It is also online. It is a Jewish Review of Books, um, but it's not a review of only books. Uh, we recently had uh, a review of The Fablemans, and there was a review, a web-exclusive review by my colleague Akiva Schick on the um, the uh, Fleischman is in Trouble TV series that recently came out. So, um, so yeah, check it out. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link for those things in the show notes uh, for people to check out. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Jews on Film. Make sure to follow us on all social medias, uh, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, you can email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for any future films you'd like us to cover or any uh, feedback for any of us or fan mail or anything like that, you know, whatever works. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify or all those things. Give us a five star. It really helps out. So we really appreciate it. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.